Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. With verdicts of guilty rendered against the three defendants, we will continue our complete coverage of the trial from gavel to gavel. Today, we take a look at defense attorney Jason Sheffield's very brief redirect examination of Travis McMichael, and we follow that with our discussion of prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's strategy in cross-examining McMichael with our consulting producer, Paul Butler. That's all coming up after the break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. After Dunikowski concludes her cross-examination of Travis McMichael, defense attorney Jason Sheffield rises for his redirect. This round of Sheffield's questioning is brief and appears to be focused on countering the impression left on the jury by this particular line of inquiry by the prosecutor. Mr. McMichael, not asking for generalities and what's in your head, I want to know exactly what you were saying to the man jogging down the street. Do you understand? Yes. Okay. What exactly did you say to him the first time you pulled up to him? I want to talk to you. And he turned around. He stopped. He had turned and then and then went the other direction. Okay. And that was an indication to you that he didn't want to talk to you. Yes. That was an indication he was not going to stop for you. Yes. Okay. And at that point in time, you chose to put your truck in reverse and back up at him. Back up along with him. So he's trying to get away from you, doesn't want to stop, doesn't want to talk, and you're backing up to go along with him. That's correct. And at some point in time then, he turns to run, right? Yes, I've asked him again, uh, or asked him that I wanted to talk to him. I don't know exactly what I said, but it was to the effect that I want to talk to him and what happened down the road. And at this point in time, you're not wearing any sort of uniform. No, ma'am. You're not in a marked patrol car. I'm not. You don't have any badges on your sleeves. I do not. Do you remember telling the police, so I pull up to him and say, hey, you know what's going on. He's running. He won't stop. I said, that's him. Stop right there. Stop where you're at. Do you remember telling the police that that's what you said? That's what's on here. Yes, ma'am. So at this point, you're ordering him to stop. I wouldn't say ordering. I was asking him. Like nicely and politely, please, sir, stop. At first, it was not police or service. Hey, could you stop? Please, you know, yes, stop for a second. Stop for a second. My voice inflection and tone, I was trying to stay, trying to keep the situation calm. And this is at the time that he's already decided that he doesn't want anything to do with you and has run back. Yes. 
with that questioning from prosecutor Linda Dunikowski hanging in the air. Sheffield wants the jury again to hear Travis McMichael tell them what was in his mind at the moment he stopped Mr. Arbery, and to reinforce the defense assertion that McMichael had reasonable grounds to fear and probable cause to suspect the man who McMichael would later kill. You've been cross-examined a bit about why you were making certain decisions to approach or not Mr. Arbery, yes, or what you thought about when he was approaching you. That's correct. And you've been shown your transcript, the statement that you had with Officer Nohilly. Okay. Yes, yes, sir. Um, <clears throat> take a look at page one, line, uh, page seven, line one. Seven, line one. Can you recall what you said to Officer Nohilly there? Objection. Inappropriate question. This is not a prior consistent or prior inconsistent statement at this time. Yeah, it's, a, it's a rehabilitation of the witness after he's been cross-examined about his intent and why he made the decisions. This is a prior statement by him that is consistent with his testimony and to, to rehabilitate him after cross-examination. He's been questioned extensively, Your Honor, about so what he said. You're rehabilitating him on a, yes, what you're right. claiming to be that yes. statement. Do you recall what you said to the officer? I do. What date were you speaking about when you were talking to the officer? I was speaking of February 11th when I saw him when, the first time that I encountered him. And did you tell the officer or give the officer an impression of what you thought about Mr. Arbery at that time? Yes. I said that when I stepped out that he was not there, he wasn't clearly there, and he reached into his pocket. And what do you mean by, what did you mean by clearly not that he, Mr. Arbery, clearly was not there? The way that he was interacting with me, the way that he was reacting to just being caught creeping or lurking in the shadows to reach to a pocket and then just stay, let's say, bold or having a brazen moment where you do that and then just go into the house, continue to do what you were doing. It was not, it was, it was off. It just wasn't, it was Did you strange. share this with Officer Nohilly a couple hours after? Yeah, I did. I did, yes, sir. All right. If you'll go to page nine, line three, before you do that, were at any point in time did you try to describe Mr. Arbery's behavior as you were interpreting it on Burford Road? To to Officer Nohill. I did, yes. Okay. And do you recall how you described his behavior? Uh yes. Okay. How did you describe it? Funny, acting funny. Uh, clearly not there. Okay, let me stop you. What do you mean by acting? What did you mean by acting funny? Uh, the way that he, his facial expressions when I first pulled up, you know, the the the, the anger, and then not speaking, uh, not talking at all. It wasn't like it wasn't ignoring me or, or you know trying to ignore me. It was just he, the way that he. Was expressing himself. He just wasn't talking. He was in an anger state. And uh, and what was your interpretation of that? That he could be relevance. Goes to his conduct. Speculation and not relevant as to his interpretation. I think it is relevant. Not speculating. It's just his interpretation. It's just like. Did you ever indicate to Officer Nohilly that you felt something was just not right with Mr. Arbery? I did. Okay. Do you recall ever indicating to Officer Nohilly that you were just wanting to watch him and, and, and hope that he would continue to run past you? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. 
certainly missed up there. Sheffield seems to want to remind the jury that Travis McMichael was thinking about his encounter with Ahmad Arbery 12 days earlier when approaching Mr. Arbery on February 23rd. Judge Timothy Walmsley would later instruct jurors that a private citizen's power to make a warrantless arrest is extinguished if the arrest is not made contemporaneously with or during the immediate pursuit after the commission of a crime. It's no wonder that McMichael's attorney would tell Judge Walmsley that his instruction was gutting their case. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Joining us now to discuss the prosecution's strategic gambles in cross-examining Travis McMichael is Georgetown Law professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler. Paul Butler, thanks again for joining us today. Hey, Carrie. It's great to be here. We've reviewed Jason Sheffield's direct examination of his client, Travis McMichael. Today, we're going to focus on Prosecutor Linda Donikowski's cross-examination of McMichael. As a general matter, how did you feel about Donikowski's strategy in approaching questioning McMichael? I thought she did a fine job. There's a temptation when you get the opportunity to cross-examine a witness like this to go in, to go hard, to want to score points in front of the jury. It takes discipline to not antagonize the witness, but to try to get him to reveal as much as possible. Typically, the lore among any litigator and what they teach you in trial advocacy is that on direct examination, the witness does most of the talking. And on cross-examination, it's the prosecutor who does most of the talking. You're allowed to ask leading questions. And in a case like this, with a witness like this, sometimes it's hard to know how to negotiate. You want, on the one hand, to not give him too much room to help himself in front of the jury. But on the other hand, if he's going to spill it and say something that's helpful to your case, you don't don't want to shut off that opportunity. And in general, I don't think that Travis McMichael comes across as a likable person. Frankly, he does not come across as a particularly intelligent person. And so there were opportunities where she, Ms. Donikowski, let him go on longer than what they teach you in trial advocacy, but sometimes to not great effect, because I don't know if there were any knockout blows, but in ways that advanced her case. So I, I thought that she struck the appropriate balance in her cross-examination. At the time that she was questioning, she didn't know that the judge would decide that the probable cause that someone that's executing a citizen's arrest would 
not go back to 12 days prior to the day that McMichael killed Ahmaud Arbery. And so she seems to have sort of hedged her bets on that front. It felt like she was doing that in a couple of different ways. The first appeared to be to capitalize on the defense opening the door to McMichael's training in the Coast Guard of what things like probable cause and use of force required in a law enforcement officer. Can you explain to us how Dunikowski used Travis McMichael's law enforcement experience against him in laying out the facts of February 23rd, 2020? As we thought about when we discussed the direct examination, Mr. McMichael's lawyer was trying to give his client some of the credibility that a real-life law enforcement officer might have in front of this jury. And also, because the self-defense theory of their case relied on citizens' arrest to make it sound like Travis McMichael had all this experience with law enforcement during his service. And I think what Ms. Donikowski did was to elicit testimony that she used in her closing to make the point that he wasn't all that experienced in law enforcement and that he didn't really seem to understand the law of probable cause. So the defense was effective at making it sound like when Travis McMichael was in the service. He was a law enforcement officer of some kind. It turns out, as we learned from Ms. Donikowski, that he was a mechanic. That was his main job. And he took some courses where he learned some stuff about law enforcement, but not enough. So she, I thought, was particularly effective when she talked to him about probable cause, which is the standard under the law for when anyone can make an arrest. And so she said, isn't it true from your training that you need two parts for probable cause? Probable cause that a crime has been committed and probable cause that the person you're arresting is actually the one who committed the crime. And he said, that's correct. And of course, they didn't have probable cause. By they, I mean the defendants didn't have probable cause on either one of those issues. Uh, there had never been a crime committed in the construction site itself, as far as we know. And as we know, there was never any evidence that pinned Mr. Arbery to any crime in that neighborhood. And so, again, you, she could have gone a little further, but I, I thought she, she did it just right. She got him to, to talk about probable cause in a way that she would, in her closing statement, really used to beat him up. Yes. I, I thought when it came to the probable cause question and the two parts of that analysis, she was very effective in demonstrating that Travis McMichael put together what he termed his probable cause or reasonable suspicion or whatever he thought he had in his head based upon a bunch of rumors and innuendos and half truths and partial information. I think the other part of it that was as it relates to the probable cause and the 
alleged attempt to make a citizen's arrest was that she made it clear that Travis McMichael was not wearing a uniform, wasn't wearing a badge, asked Mr. Arbery to stop saying he wanted to talk. Mr. Arbery made it clear that he didn't want to talk. And Dundakowski asked Travis McMichael, are you familiar with the Fifth Amendment? Are you familiar with the fact that Mr. Arbery was indicating to you that he didn't want to talk and would have been exercising his Fifth Amendment right? And it felt like she pinned him down there very, very successfully. She did. And in part, it sounded in court kind of like what you just said. And again, that's the art of the prosecutor testifying, the cross-examiner testifying. We saw the same series of questions when she was asking him about whether Mr. Arbery was actually a threat. She said, did Mr. Arbery reach into his pockets? Uh, Did he yell? Did he threaten you? Did he brandish weapons? Did he have a gun? Did he have a knife? And you hear Mr. McMichael answer no to all those questions, but it's almost like she's testifying for him. Absolutely. And yeah, I I wanted to speak about the use of force and particularly in those last moments when Mr. McMichael decided to draw his weapon on Ahmaud Arbery. Can you take us through what Prosecutor Dunikowski's tactics were in questioning Travis McMichael about the use of force, especially the brandishing and shooting of his shotgun. The only hope that Travis McMichael had is if first he could get the judge to say that even if the defendants didn't have a legal justification for the citizen's arrest, if at some point in the encounter, Mr. Arbery initiated a deadly threat, then the defendants still had the right to defend themselves, including with deadly force. And on direct examination, Travis had tried to advance that claim by saying that Mr. Arbery had grabbed his shotgun when they were in a tussle and when Mr. Arbery was clearly trying to run literally for his life. On cross-examination, Ms. Donikowski elicited from Travis that he had told an investigator earlier that he could not remember whether Mr. Arbery grabbed the gun or not. And that's a major issue for two reasons. First, it's his only hope, his only chance is if he could say that I had to use my weapon in self-defense or otherwise, I would have been killed. If we, if we think about the Rittenhouse case, Kyle Rittenhouse made similar claims. The first person he shot, he said, had tried to grab his shotgun. And in order to prevent himself from being killed, he had to fire at that person. And Travis had a similar defense, but Now, on cross, he's telling the prosecutor he can't remember whether Mr. Arbery grabbed the gun or not. Okay, well, then exactly why was it that you shot him three times? The other point that the prosecutor was able to make with Mr. McMichael's memory issue is that maybe it's actually a credibility issue. 
maybe on direct examination, he was telling the jury what he needed to say, but maybe that wasn't true. Mr. McMichael had tried to explain some of his inconsistencies by saying, this was the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me. And you might think that the trauma of having a gun taken away from you in very close proximity with the fear that it's going to be used to kill you is something that you would remember. And so I think that the jury, either way, either they didn't know whether Mr. McMichael actually was threatened or they thought that he wasn't credible on that issue. Either way, that greatly advanced the prosecutor's case. I look at it slightly differently, Paul. I think that the jury may well have believed that Travis McMichael was being attacked when he fired his shotgun. But as the Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent Richard Dial said during that preliminary probable cause hearing, Mr. Arbery at that moment believed that he was trapped and he could have tried to find another way out after four minutes of trying to escape and flee, or he could choose to engage and he chose to fight. But as you said early on, I think Travis McMichael lost the right to defend himself with deadly force when he committed a felony in trying to falsely imprison Ahmaud Arbery. And I think that's how the jury perceived it. And I think that's where the judge's instructions guided them. I'd like to close this conversation by discussing the prosecution's strategy not to focus on racial bias in their interrogation of Travis McMichael, and yet in the interrogation of some of the other witnesses, particularly when on cross-examination, prosecutor Larissa Olivier asked witness and Travis McMichael's neighbor, Lindy Coffer, do you believe that stealing is deserving of the death penalty, for which she received an admonition from the judge who said that the question was inflammatory and irrelevant and completely unnecessary? That seemed to be the one exception to the rule of invoking emotion and a sense of racial animus in the attitude of the neighborhood of Satilla Shores. Can you give me your assessment of the strategic thinking that may have been going on in the prosecutor's office in both Prosecutor Donikowski's interrogation of Travis McMichael and Prosecutor Olivier's questioning of some of the other witnesses? I think that the prosecution probably changed its strategy about how it would invoke racial bias once it discovered that it had a virtually all-white jury. Remember, the prosecutors put up a ferocious challenge based on Batson, as we've discussed, to try to make the jury more diverse and more reflective of the county, but they were not successful. And whenever I think about this, I just think that I don't know how Southern white people think. And obviously, in retrospect, Ms. Donikowski does. And I think that 
they were concerned about looking like they were injecting race in the case is a phrase that the judge used at one point. And of course, it's ridiculous to think that the prosecutors in eliciting testimony about the racism of the defendants would be the ones who are injecting race into the trial. But like I said, I don't know how how white Southern jurors might think about that. And the result, obviously, in the trial suggests that the prosecutor's strategy was, was correct. Now, certainly they elicited some testimony that implicated race in subtle ways, in ways that you could describe as a code. So the prosecutor did get from Mr. McMichael that on social media, he made all these statements about crime in the area. He called one suspect to a crime vermin. So reading between the lines, I think the jury could infer that Travis McMichael had some racial baggage, but there was nothing overt. And the smoking gun evidence of what, according to Mr. Bryant, Travis said after he killed Mr. Arbery, the N-word, that wasn't part of the case. What they'd earlier fought to make part of the case, the fact that Travis McMichael had a license plate that to me looked like the Confederate flag, but I guess it was actually the old Georgia state flag that had the emblem of the Confederate flag on it. They didn't use that. So again, I think they were tiptoeing around race for strategic reasons. And when the judge got really mad at the prosecution for that question about does anyone deserve the death penalty for stealing? I didn't hear that as about race. I heard that as the prosecutor making a sly point about what the law calls proportionality and about excessive force. So to the extent that there might be jurors who question what Mr. Aubrey was doing, including There was evidence that he'd gone into this construction site during the evening on a few occasions. So if there were jurors who had their own suspicions about what Mr. Arbery was up to, I thought that question, even though it was outside the bounds of what a lawyer is allowed to ask, uh, was getting at that issue. But tell me more about why you think that question was about race. I think that asked by a black female prosecutor of a white resident of Satilla Shores. I think there was an implicit shaming going on. I think that Lindy Coffer, that witness in particular, seemed sympathetic to Travis McMichael. And I think a number of those residents were sympathetic to Travis McMichael and, as his defense attorney put it, assuming a duty and a responsibility to protect the neighborhood. And I think that while the prosecution was careful with Travis McMichael to make it about the law and about 
the assumptions and driveway decisions that he and his father made. I think that the prosecution was tactically using the racial dynamics between that prosecutor and that witness to send a message to jurors that just because they may have some sympathy for these defendants and what they were trying to do, they needed to think about it in the cold, stark terms of what actually happened here. That's why I saw it about being a tactical way to use the racial dynamics of what was going on in the courtroom to make a point not to this witness particularly, but to the jurors who may find some sympathy in these witnesses and in this neighborhood and potentially for the defendants to think twice about that. Think twice about whether they wanted to ally themselves with that state of mind. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly possible. And as a former prosecutor and still a Black Man, I certainly am aware of times in which strategically you use your presence as a black person to question a witness in a way that you hope makes a point about race. I think it's a little subtle in the way that you're describing. So maybe it's semantical, but I would still think that the main point that that question was designed to drive home was about proportionality, that you you don't bring a, a gun to a street fight, whatever the expression is. I think at this point, they were being extremely careful about race. I think they knew they had a good case. I think that they knew better than I did that they could win this jury over without making the case about race. And and so they did. Paul Butler, thank you as always for being with us. Always a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. As you know, we jumped to our examination of Travis McMichael's testimony so that we could present it to you soon after it happened. Join us in our next episode as we go back to the beginning of the state of Georgia's case against the three defendants, and we examine the way that the prosecutors organized and presented the evidence against Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. 
Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.